bless these little ones as they head back to school. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you guys can quietly go upstairs. Have a great morning. That was pretty cute. Bible's word for dummy. <gasps> dummy, Pastor Jeff said a, wrong, said a bad word. Somewhere between the hot dogs and the watermelons, the beach times and the sunburns, something shifted this week, and I think it was on Friday. It got a little bit colder, wind picked up, just very faintly drizzled. And to me, at least, it felt like a sudden lurch into the fall season. And with school right around the corner and people coming out of their summer slumber, those groans begin of, ugh, it's back to school, back to real life, back from our summer recreational hibernation and rhythms. It's the season of trading in long, slow days for a bit more of a hustle lifestyle. Summer does feel like it's over or very nearly over, at least from my perspective. And those groans started kind of emerging in my own heart, and I heard it from people around me. Ugh, why do we have to go back? Why can't we live in this summer mode forever? And then allowing our imaginations to fantasize about wouldn't it be amazing to have a life where you didn't have to work? and you had no significant responsibilities, and you could just recreate all day long and all week long and week over week and month over month and just enjoy life, wouldn't that life be so much better? And it's tempting to think so. And yet as one author that I was reading this week boldly declared, there's actually no evidence in the Bible that humans were ever meant to not work. And I would, e I would even go further there than that. I would say there's no evidence in the Bible that humans can actually flourish outside of some kind of meaningful work or labor. And so on this Labor Day long weekend, I think it's really important to remember that the Bible really boldly declares that our labor is essential to what it means to be human, and it's integral to fulfilling one of the most basic callings we have as image bearers made in the image of God. If you've been around, you will have heard me mention this. It probably comes up at least once a year, but the two highest rates for clinical depression over the lifespan is during adolescence and the first five years after retirement. And I just read a, another stat this week that says retirement increases your chances of developing clinical depression by 40% simply by shifting into retirement. And that includes people for whom their jobs were very tedious or difficult. People tend not to cope or adjust well to a life that is just all relaxation, recreation, taking life easy, and the sidelining of work responsibilities. And the Bible actually gives us fascinating insight into why that is the case. In Genesis 2.15, we read that God places Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it. 
And the placement of Adam in the garden is like a mirror. It's, it's, it's a parallel to each of our stories, right? You've been gifted with life from God. You've been gifted with certain skills. And you've been placed into the garden that is Nelson. And your role within Nelson is to work it and to take care of it. The Hebrew word work is obda, and it means to toil. But it also means not just as um, toiling effort, it means to serve. And the take care of is the Hebrew word samra, and it means to guard or to watch or preserve. So there's this sort of hint very early on that what all human beings are called to do in the little gardens that God has placed them is to develop them, to serve them, to bring out the potential while safeguarding and preserving the goodness and recognizing this is a gift from God and this is something to be nourished and developed but also handed on to successive generations. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer keeps coming back to a refrain that in the midst of looking at a lot of life and saying, it seems like a lot of life is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. We make all these plans and strive after all these goals and it's always kind of slipping through our grasp. But he keeps coming back to the fact that being able to be content in your work, to enjoy the fruit of your labor, that's actually a gift from God. These simple pleasures of food and drink and work are actually one of the things that is counter to this refrain in Ecclesiastes of life is meaningless. The author says, well, but in a lot of good ways, just doing the everyday work that we're called to do is really a gift from God. It's meaningful, it's important, it's a bright spot in a world that may often feel meaningless. As one person who I was reading this week commented, Scripture says a lot about the fundamental worth and dignity of all labor. Paul wrote to the Ephesians with a reminder that God has prepared good works for his children and that we've been created to do them. God has a mission for us, has work for us to do. In another letter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul encourages the Corinthians to be steadfast, working with excellence, knowing that any work done for God is not done in vain. It has immediate and eternal significance. Proverbs 31 highlights the work done by this woman of noble character who with willing hands buys and sells land, creates, plants, manages. And in the Old Testament, you have all these different jobs from shepherding to being a military commander and judge like Deborah is in the Old Testament. These jobs that people who are faithful in these things become a conduit of God's blessing to the world. In ways big and small, the Bible reinforces the fundamental value of work and it, and it encourages us to see our work as one of the main ways through which we can serve God and serve our neighbor. And because of that, every single Christian is called to engage in work and the labor that God has given them to do fully and faithfully. Now, if I were to stop the message right there, you would say, Yep, that's a high level, that's kind of inspiring. But there's a pretty significant disconnect between that maybe inspiring big vision for our work and how I experience my work on a day-to-day -day level, right? We know that this grand biblical vision isn't just all good news about work and the dignity of work and we're all moving into meaningful, uh, life-affirming work. I'm sure... Maybe not all of you. Maybe a few of you are aware of this. Um, work isn't always thrilling. Right? Can I get an amen? 
work isn't always suffused with deep meaning and a sense of transcendent connection to the things that ultimately matter or serving God or blessing our neighbors. It can be hard to go out and do the hard work that God has called us to. Right? Maybe you've been asked to serve in a workplace whose culture doesn't honor God at all. And you feel like you're a stranger in a foreign land. Maybe God has brought you to a new place and you had dreams of doing something that would move towards recognition and fame and prominence and those dreams have been replaced with a call to serve in a much smaller way, maybe even a kind of hidden way. Maybe you've been faithfully toiling in a role that you love but you've been, become very frustrated and even discouraged because the fruit of what you expected to happen from that toil just hasn't emerged. But the toil continues on week and month and year after year. Maybe you're a student who even the thought of moving, transitioning back into school and getting into the, the grind of daily assignments and being in a classroom context where there's lots of people who aren't interested in learning and growing and developing their skills and just the whole... Um, kind of just do the minimum bare, bare minimum culture, that that's already exhausting you. Maybe you're retired, trying to find that purpose, trying to get back to that place of, I'm doing something every day and every week that has meaning. Maybe you're unemployed, or you're underemployed, and you're really frustrated as a result of that. Maybe your workplace is literally stressful, and it's very, very toxic, and it feels like you don't have a lot of ability to influence how things are done, what is being done, what's being prioritized, what's being sidelined. So the Bible does give us a grand vision for our work that is rooted in the fundamental goodness of work, but it also gives us insight into why work often feels so laborious, so unfruitful, so discouraging much, most or even much of the time. In Genesis 3, 17 to 19, as a result of Adam and Eve's decision to reject God's authority, to reject the command, to say, hey, we kind of see how you've set things up and we've heard how you see this playing out and our role in that. Thank you, but no thank you. We've gotten other advice and we're going to kind of take that advice and we'll take it from here. God curses work for all humans. And this is a punishment that seeks to introduce very intentionally new hardships and new roadblocks that are going to serve as a reminder to all humans of what happens when we think we know better than God. What happens when we think we can reject or ignore his purposes for creation, his calling for us to be gardeners where he's planted us, and to just live life according to what seems right in our own eyes and what works for us instead of what serves God and serves our neighbor. To Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So God says, I'm introducing thorns and thistles. I'm going to introduce new hardships and derailments 
that are going to encroach upon your efforts to really get things done and to be maximally productive and efficient and thriving. God warns them that now harvest is going to come through painful toil. It's going to mean more effort, new heartaches, new painful situations, not just physically, but the painful toil of trying to work with people and all the different sinful dynamics and um, interruptions and broken dreams and best laid plans going to pot. God says, by the sweat of your brow, work is now going to demand a new level of exhaustion and strain. Now God says, you're still going to harvest, you're you're still going to reap from your work. But he says, every harvest will now demand a reckoning. It'll, it'll never be easy. Every harvest will now demand a reckoning, relationally, physically, emotionally. There will be no such thing as a free lunch. One author said, part of what the fall, this rejection of God's authority in our lives, part of what it takes from us is meaningful work, work connected to God and meaningfully connected to our neighbors. I don't know how many of you um, either heard about it at school or through some other avenue. Do you guys, are you guys familiar with Sisyphus, the Greek myth, Sisyphus? This is this king who gets cursed by the gods because he's prideful and deceitful. So the Greek gods, according to the story, they force him to roll a huge stone up a hill. And once he nears the top of the hill, the stone always rolls down to the bottom. And he's cursed forever to just play that cycle out. Roll the rock up the hill, almost getting to the top. No, it falls down. Go back down. Keep rolling up the hill. And he's cursed to do that forever. His efforts are fruitless. They're hard. They're unyielding. And often that's what our work feels like to us. At the worst of times, we feel like Sisyphus. We're working so hard, but we're not getting anywhere. And this is part of what drives the author of Ecclesiastes to counter this idea that work is good, but he also says it's also at the same time sort of meaningless. Because I look at all this labor, I look at all that is done under the sun. And so often, it just, the best laid plans just never pan out. The best of intentions, the hardest worker, sometimes those who are lazy prosper while those who work hard don't and sometimes you just look at the pattern and it just seems all messed up and that's because the bible warns us and tells us honestly that while work is good work is cursed and we live in a fallen world and so with the one hand the bible says work is valuable it's important it has dignity but work also bears evidence of a curse of a fundamental brokenness, both because of what now we bring into it and just the nature of what it is. And no matter how crafty our scheming or our intentions or our technology gets, we can never undo that curse. Often we solve one problem, the technology solves the problem over here and introduces something new over here, right? Remember the days, remember the 90s when I talked about how as technology rises, our work hours are going to go like this. We're going to be working less. Remember that? I heard that all the time. We're just going to, technology is going to improve, which will necessitate us working less and less and less. And yet in North America, we work more than any other culture on the planet. We're more stressed out. We take more medication. 
So technology saved us from some kind of labor, but introduced new complexities. So we're not even good at being able to say, oh, here's the problem. I know how we can make work better. We'll do this. There are these deep systemic um, issues in our work because what it is is cursed. But there is good news. And this ancient story, this ancient pattern of work being an arena where some days are good and some days are bad and some days there is fruitful harvest and other days and weeks there just isn't, that there is an interruption to that story. And that is the resurrection of Jesus. And when you think of the resurrection of Jesus, many people, especially if you've grown up in the church, you make an immediate through line between the resurrection of Jesus and personal significance as it relates to salvation. Because Jesus came and died for our sins and was resurrected and ascended, that means that as I place my trust in him, he can gift me with eternal life, he can forgive me of my sins. That's all true. That's kind of the most central of the concentric circles of the implications of the resurrection. But as we move that out, we have to understand the implications of coming into new life in Christ for our work. Yes, Jesus has provided a way that we can be fully forgiven and fully redeemed. But why doesn't, if, if, if the end game ultimately was just having your sins forgiven so you could move into eternity and have heaven with God, why wouldn't Jesus just, why wouldn't God just snatch us up when we accept Christ? That's the end game, boom, now we're in heaven. And that's just the way it would work. That's not what happens. When I turned my life over to Jesus when I was 14, I said a prayer, I had a powerful sense of God's presence and God's forgiveness, but I was still in my bedroom. Right? God leaves us here because there's still important work to be done. Part of that work is sharing the good news of Jesus with those who don't know him and learning to worship God. But in a bigger sense, it's learning to get on with our work in a new way, to allow our work to have new significance, to serve God through our work. That's part of the way we please God in a post-resurrection world. See, one author said, Jesus returns to us what was lost in the fall. We sing about this at Christmas, right? We sing about how, you know, Jesus undoes the curse of sin far as the curse is found. Right? We sing that song. What's happening in the resurrection is God is saying, now I've created a new way through which people can be reconnected to God, not through the burden of trying to keep the law or to be religiously uh, performatively perfect or any of that, but simply by trusting me, by receiving this gift, now they receive my spirit, now they're a part of my people, but my vision for them isn't just to spend all time in church all day doing quote-unquote spiritual things, it's to take, as Romans 12 says, your whole life and make it an act of worship. Your whole life, meaning, yeah, as you come to church on Sunday, do it with intention, but then when you go to work or you go to school on Monday morning, do it with intention. Go on the journey of saying, how do I honor God through this uh, through this opportunity, right? In the post-resurrection world, it's, it's one of my, it's, it is probably my favorite post-resurrection story, right? Mary meets Jesus in the post-resurrection state, but, but she mistakes him for the gardener, right? Scripture says, scripture says that in John 20. She thinks Jesus is the gardener, which we think, okay, that's a weird detail, but it's actually an echo back to Genesis chapter one and two, right? 
Because God placed Adam in the garden to garden it, to work it, and to take care of it. And so when Mary says, you know, are you the gardener? Tell me where you've laid his body, right? She mistakes him for the gardener. That's a, what's called an intertextual echo to this theme that there was a first Adam who was supposed to be a gardener and screwed it up for all of us. And now we live in the wake of that brokenness. So Jesus is the new Adam, the second Adam, the new gardener, who's going to show us what it means to move into life, all of life, and to honor God and to work and to serve God, toil, in a way that guards and preserves the goodness of God's creation. And so when Jesus calls you to be his disciple, he's calling you because there's work to be done. And that's not just what we might think of as spiritual work. It's all the work of our lives, all the responsibilities we're learning to do in a way that glorifies God and blesses those around us. And if you are a Christian, that is not just a big 30,000 foot view of what, it mean, you know, what that means for Christians. I want you to hear that's what that means for you. Because you, if, if you are here and you are a Christian, that means God has work specifically for you to do. There is a way that God is calling you to help serve this world through your work and labor that is distinctive and that no one else can do. You can't outsource it to anybody else. That's why just spending your, all of your days uh, recreating would actually be sinful because you'd be abdicating your personal responsibility to use your gifts to serve God and serve other people. As one author said, your presence and your purpose in this world matters. And it doesn't matter whether you're the most impressive piece of a, in a pile helping others to stand firm or you're just a very small accent that is called to shine brightly. You are called to glorify God. You are irreplaceable. You are perfectly equipped. You are incredibly necessary to the work and labor God has planned for you. And in Christ, that labor can accomplish more than you could ever imagine. And again, we tend to hear an encouragement like that and jump right to church work or ministry work. Oh yeah, God wants me to serve in Sunday school or to help my church in this way. But this is the bigger vision. Ministry is just meeting needs with love. That's all ministry is. It's meeting needs with the love of God. And that's what God expects, expects us to do as we move into our sports teams, as we move into our classrooms, as we move into our workplaces, as we move into the labor that God has opened up for us. Our work as the church, not the church work, I mean our work as the church out in the community is meant to be a witness to the fact that we serve a greater and a different authority. It's meant to show people that we have a new trajectory of our lives, of our imagination, of what is possible, what we're seeking to do. We're not just working out of self-ambition and self-interest. We're working to serve and to bless. And it shows that our hearts are burning with the desire to serve and love our neighbors. So we're not going through the motions at school because that's how God's going to prepare us to do um, more expansive work to bless other people later. We're not going to just go through the motions at work because there's a lot at stake as it relates to your work and what you're doing this Wednesday or this Friday night on your shift. That's why Paul to the Colossians church 
It's, it's one of the most basic ethics in all of the Bible, but it's super challenging, but also very inspiring. He says, whatever you do, just blank, just whatever you do, you fill in the blank, work at it with all your heart, labor at it with all your heart, all your guts, as working for the Lord, not for human masters or bosses, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Right? Whatever you do, if you're cleaning, if you're accounting, if you're doing homework, if you're teaching, if you're insuring, if you're administrating, if you're providing medical care, if you're providing hospitality, if you're cooking, if you're homemaking, if you're designing, do it for Jesus. And notice in Colossians 3.24, Paul doesn't say, do it, and just try to kind of trick yourself, like try and think as, as if you were working for Jesus. He says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. It is. And so reverse engineer that. If Jesus is the one who's going to read this essay, if Jesus is the one who's going to receive um, this cleaning, if Jesus is the one who's going to receive this effort over here, ultimately, how now should I prepare and do it? And Paul says, work at it with all your heart. See it as an opportunity to say, God, I love you, and I hope this is fruitful and helpful for people. And so that means we seek to be a blessing to those around us at work. And that might mean confronting dysfunctional or bad or uh, petty patterns in your workplace. It's going to mean overcoming evil or immaturity or deceit or manipulation with good at school or at work. It's going to mean to aspire to become great but not through the ends of self-aggrandizement, to become great by serving and helping other people flourish in their context and to be supportive to your coworkers and to your boss or towards your employees. We work to try and develop a really good workplace culture through integrity and joy and hard work. We pray for people in our class, people in our workplaces, our coworkers, our workplace overall. We do our jobs as much as it depends on us with excellence even when other people around us are encouraging us to flake out and to just do the bare minimum. We set the bar high for ourselves. Not so that we can look at other people and say, I'm better, not in a self-righteous way, but in recognition, oh, this is for Jesus. This is for Jesus. I'm working, I'm laboring for a different master. And so I want us to decide today maybe for the first time, maybe in a fresh way on this Labor Day weekend, to really see your work and responsibilities as an offering to Jesus. And I know that vision is hard to hold on to, but let it start this morning by saying, yeah, God, like, please set that before me as I move through this year. There's a pastor named Mark Glenn, and he writes about how his life was impacted by this idea of working to please Jesus. He says, I was taught this lesson of what it means to work for the Lord as a child. I didn't know it at the time, but I had seen this biblical teaching lived out. I grew up going to a little, um, a little mill village church in Huntsville, Alabama, and there was a gentleman named Mr. Green who was a part-time janitor at our church. And our church was spotless. He said the linoleum floors were polished to a fine shine and sometimes they were even so slick that they were actually dangerous to walk on. The rooms were clean, the sanctuary was polished, and well, the whole place, I remember as a child, realizing this place is magnificent. 
And I've never forgotten how clean my little church was. Mr. Green made sure it was always clean and it always stayed that way. And if you talk to Mr. Green and asked him why he spends so much time cleaning the church to the degree that he did, he would tell you, well, it's because Jesus is coming to church on Sunday and he wanted the building to be ready for Jesus. Now think about that. Mr. Green had taken the most mundane chores of mopping floors and picking up trash and cleaning bathrooms and dusting pews and he made them into acts of worship. So he wasn't cleaning the church simply for a paycheck or to please the congregation. He was cleaning the church as an offering to Jesus. And this pastor writes, every Sunday that I worshipped in that little church, I was sitting in the middle of Mr. Green's offering to Jesus. And that is a Christian vision for work, for labor. That through our work, others can be even wowed into the presence and the goodness of God. And all work, not just spiritual work, but work done to God and to serve your neighbor, all work can have that result when it's done as an offering to Jesus. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. When Jesus becomes Lord of our lives, he gives us a new heart and a new way of thinking about every aspect of our lives, including our work. Our work needs to be re-engaged with a new vision and a new power. And today I want to invite you to commit your work to the Lord in your head. Because your labor, whether it's paid or unpaid, um, whether it's seen and applauded or unseen and unrecognized, Scripture says it is an important element to God's kingdom purposes in this world. So I'm going to call the worship team up, and they're going to lead us in a time of worship. We'll actually do two songs. And as they play... I'm going to stand up here, and I've got a little bowl of oil over there. And if you'd like to receive a blessing for your work or your workplace this year, then at any point as we're standing and singing, you can just come down the middle aisle, and I will just take a tiny little bit of oil on my thumb, and I'll just put a sign of the cross on your forehead as a sign and symbol that God desires to bless and anoint you to be a source of blessing. And so as you come forward, it's a public you know, it's a recognition before God and before each other to say, regardless of how I thought or engaged work before, this is a year where I really want to, maybe in a new and fresh way, go on that journey of discovering what does it look like for me to go to school or go to work or to be retired in a fruitful way for God. So as we continue in worship, let Paul's powerful encouragement from 1 Corinthians challenge us and summon us to deeper faithfulness in the work that God has called us to do. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. God, as we continue to worship you, may you just sow seeds of deep encouragement as this biblical vision of our work having value being a place, an arena of yes challenge, but now a place where we can bring your power.
for in your grace and your goodness to bear and, and, and to play a small part in undoing the curse of sin through your resurrection power. Give us a vision for our work and labor, God, so that we can serve you faithfully through it. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. Please stand. No.